Okay, I think I'm ready now. <laughs> we'll reset there. This morning, we're looking at Haggai, the first chapter. There are only two chapters in the book, uh, and I'd like to read that first chapter. And if you are able, if you'd stand out of reverence for God's word, that would be great. This is Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. You may be seated. Will you please pray with me? Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, please, Pour out the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit on us as we look to your word today. Help us to hear you, be in awe of you, obey you and love you more because of the time we spend together today. Lord Jesus, our perfect prophet, priest, and king, please drive the money changers and thieves out of the temple of your church and out of the temple of my own life. Drive them out of the temple of the Holy Spirit that each of us are by your grace. And by your Spirit's power, may you work the changes that you desire in our lives, individually and as a church, that we might seek first 
your kingdom and your righteousness. May we be startled wide awake by your voice this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our our Lord, who is building his church. May we build with him. Amen. I I thank God for his gracious providence in allowing me to share from Haggai this morning. Pete asked me a few months ago if I'd be willing to fill in for him sometime. I said, sure. I had no idea it would be uh, on the first Sunday of the year, first Sunday of January, when time is, is on everybody's mind. And we'll see that the message of Haggai really focuses on time. It is time stamped throughout so, we, so that we know when all the events that are recorded there happened. From our human perspective, time can seem somewhat uh, relative. We have different time zones that we have around our globe to keep track of, to measure time. Our son Jonathan was born uh, on November 6, 2018. 2011, I almost said 2011, 2211 or something crazy like that. But He was born at 1.18 in the morning, and November 6th uh, that year happened to be the end of daylight savings time. So we were at the hospital, he was born at 1.18 a.m., and then at 2 o'clock, some of the clocks at the hospital just stopped, and some of them went back to 1 o'clock, and so the time of his birth actually came twice that night. So time for us can seem somewhat relative. But there are, there are people in some places who act as if all the reality of the universe is relative. In fact, there are places in my own heart where I act like all of God's will and word are relative. Sometimes we don't know how to tell the time. We don't know what time it is. But the creator of time knows exactly what time it is in our lives. So we must carefully consider what he may be calling us to. So this morning we're looking at Haggai 1 and we're asking ourselves the question, what time is it? What time is it? And this sermon is organized under two broad headings. Number one, time to hear the Lord of hosts, which is verses 1 through 11. And secondly, time to fear the Lord of hosts, verses 12 through 15. So first of all, time to hear the Lord of hosts, verses 1 through 11. First, we have the setting in the first two verses. We've got the who, what, when, where, why, and how. They're not in that order, but they're all there. Verse 1, we've got when and where. It was actually 520 B.C., about 2,541 years and eight months ago. Back 60 or 70 years before that, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem. He had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. He had taken the people of Judah captive to Babylon. Maybe 40 or so years after that, he was overthrown by Cyrus of Persia. And then in 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, made a decree that the Jews could go back to their, to their homeland, back to Judah. And that they could not only build the temple, but he gave them resources to do so. So they went back. Some of them went back, not all of them. And they started that work, but the work halted after a few years. And then that brings us to the setting of this book. We're at 520 B.C. And actually this starts uh, on August 29th, 520 B.C. It's the first day of the month. It's a new moon probably a holy day with the people gathered at the temple ruins for worship. 
It was the time of year when grapes, figs, and pomegranates were being harvested. It was also three weeks after the anniversary of the destruction of the temple, which happened about 66 years earlier. The year 520 was one of crisis for Jerusalem. It was not the kind of crisis obvious to all as when a threat of invasion shocks a whole population into action. But the dangerous state of moral paralysis, which accepts as normal conditions that demand drastic changes. The Jews who had returned from Babylon had been given to expect that the very desert would burst into flower for them. Instead, they found the desert encroaching on their fields and and orchards as one year of drought followed another. The consequent food shortage and poverty had taken the heart of those out of those who might otherwise have been eager to rebuild. So we have when, and, and we've got now who. Uh, the characters in the book of Haggai, there are several. First we have Darius, the king. He was the third king of Persia. He reigned from 522 to 486. We have Haggai, the prophet. He was possibly born before the destruction of Solomon's temple, but may have been born in exile in Babylon. If he was bef- born before the destruction of the temple, he would have been at least probably in his 70s or older even. Um, Haggai, his, his name is derived from a word that means festival, so some people think that he was maybe born um, on a Jewish feast day. We don't know anything about his personal life, but he was the first prophet after the exile to minister to the, to the people who had returned to Judah from the Babylonian captivity. Next, we have Zerubbabel, the appointed uh, governor of Judah. He was appointed by the Persian king Darius. He was the grandson of Jehoiachin, one of the evil kings of Judah, who was the one that was, who had been exiled to Babylon initially. He was descended from King David and an ancestor of Joseph. And Joseph, as in Mary and Joseph, not Joseph. Um, and Zerubbabel was the heir apparent to the throne of David. We have Joshua, the high priest, or Jesus, Jesus is his name. Yahweh is salvation. Uh, his grandfather had been killed by the Babylonians. His father had been deported to Babylon. And as priest, Joshua's line went all the way back to Aaron. So in these three characters, Haggai, Joshua, and Zerubbabel, we have a prophet, a priest, and a king of sorts that are leading God's people, though, imperfectly. Of course, we have the people. In the book of Ezra, we find that only about 50,000 Jews returned to Judah after the Babylonian uh, exile. Only about 50,000. And we also have, most importantly, the Lord of hosts. This title, Lord of hosts, occurs 14 times in the book of Haggai. About half of the verses in this book use that phrase. This title emphasizes the Lord as the leader of heavenly or earthly armies. The Lord of hosts, the word is sabaot, means, means armies or angelic beings or perhaps the created hosts, the stars. He is the Lord of the powers of heaven, the source of all power, the controller of armies on earth and in heaven. He is the Lord of all powers, seen and unseen, in the universe and in heaven. The Lord Almighty, the mightiest warrior. He is the all-powerful King of Israel, the ruler of the entire universe who stands ready to intervene for his people at any moment. He is the creator of time, and he is the one who knows 
what time it is. Third, we have the what and the how. Still, in, still under the setting, things will go faster in a little bit here. Uh, we have the what is the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. For the first time after the exile, the authentic voice of prophecy was heard. The vox dei, the, the voice and the authority of God had come at last to speak to the needs of his people. And we have the how. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. By the hand of, by the instrumentality of Haggai. The messages from the Lord through Haggai and also to Haggai, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people. Notice that in this, this chapter we'll see that the word came by Haggai and came to the leaders first. So we see that they needed the correction of Haggai's message too. Next we have the why. Why did this happen? Well, when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem back in 586, the Jews' holy and beautiful house where their fathers had praised the Lord had been ruined, had been burned by fire, and all their pleasant places had become ruins, Isaiah tells us. The major problem to Haggai was that though the people had been back in Jerusalem for 15 years or so, the Lord's house was in ruins. The people were doing nothing about it. The Jews of Jerusalem and Judah, they had been decimated. They were left in shambles. Archaeology surveys suggest that Judah lost about 90% of its population in the years leading up to Haggai's ministry. So the returnees to the site of Jerusalem would have been met by wild animals, weeds, perhaps 50 years worth of weeds, dirt, mounds of debris, the fields of crops that suffered from 50 years of neglect. On top of this, Haggai mentions drought as well. So the people did face difficult even even desperate circumstances. The task of starting over in the land had proven to be a very difficult one. A sense of resignation killed their faith. Disillusionment had set in after that first exhilarating sense of adventure and returning to the land, once that sense of adventure had passed. Had God disowned them? There was much to be done and there were few to do it. The same able-bodied men were in demand for everything. How could they make a living on their farms as well as build the temple? It is conceivable that some had questioned whether the rebuilding of the temple justified all the expenditure involved and whether God had expected it, for it was serious, after all, the pagan, Persian, heathen king who had ordered the work to be done. It has even been suggested that a miraculous provision of a new temple was expected because Ezekiel was shown the temple, he described, and made no mention of its reconstruction. There was no mention of actually having to do any work. Notice that verse 2 says, these people say the time has not yet come. It does not say, God does not say my people. God is distancing himself from the people who are living contrary to his word. So even though the times are tough, he still holds his people accountable to think, to act, and to live like his people. The people were facing difficult economic times, but every time is suitable to build for the one who has determined once and for all to restore the temple of God. Section B under time to hear the Lord of hosts 
What time is it? This is from verses 3 and 4 and part of verse 9. What time is it? Is the question. God is saying, why is everyone saying it is not the right time for building my temple? Is it then the right time for you to live in luxurious homes when the, when the temple lies in ruins? They had paneled houses. They were ornate and well-made, and that was not so much, they were not so much useful as just luxurious. And God says, my dwelling place, in which was the holy of holies, the cherubim, will it be drenched by rain showers? Will it be left in squalor? Will it be scorched by the sun? You dwell in your paddled houses. It's a very strong contrast to what King David said in Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. But yet, the temple was in ruins. It was dried up, parched, a desolate waste. The people were more concerned with their own needs than with doing God's will. And as a result, they suffered. They had fallen victim to what the devils in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters call one of their best weapons, contented worldliness. Opposition from hostile neighbors had caused them to feel discouraged and to neglect the temple and thus to neglect their relationship with God. The people forgot their purpose and they lost their priorities as opposition and apathy brought the work to a standstill. But our values and priorities are reflected in how we use our resources, our time, money, strength, and talent. God asked his people how they could live in luxury when his house was lying in ruins. The temple was the focal point of Judah's relationship with God, but it was still demolished. Instead of rebuilding the temple, the people put their energies into beautifying their own homes. However, the harder the people worked for themselves, the less they had because they ignore their spiritual lives. The same happens with us. If we put God first, he provides for our deepest needs. If we put him in any other place, all our efforts will be futile. Caring only for your physical needs while ignoring our relationship with God will certainly lead to ruin. So Judah's problem was confused priorities. Like Judah, our priorities involving occupation, family, God's work are often confused as well. Jobs, homes, vacations, leisure activities may rank higher in our list of priorities than God does. What is most important to you? Where is God on your list of priorities? What time is it? Now, it is easy to become self-absorbed, self and family absorbed, insulated and have an interior focus and not reach out or be community-minded, but we certainly need a need for balance. God is not calling us to allow our homes to fall into ruin, our families to fall into ruin and disrepair, but, but, let me turn to the next page where that quote is, we too need to repent of our focus on building our own homes, not the Lord's. We need to pour our energies into building God's house, that is, pursuing His purposes, while remembering that the visible symbol of his presence in the midst of his people is no longer a building, but Jesus Christ himself. 
As Emmanuel, Jesus physically represented God's presence among his people. When he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, Jesus showed that the true, he showed the true zeal for God's house that we often lack. And at the cross, he took upon himself the punishment we deserve for our self-centered focus on our own homes, our own selves. Now that Jesus has ascended back to heaven, God's presence in the world is represented by his people. As the body of Christ, the church is now the new temple. As in the case in Haggai chapter 1, so it is with us. Sometimes God asks questions to shake us from our spiritual stupor. Famously, we have, of course, in Genesis 3, after the fall, God asks Adam, where are you? In Haggai, God is asking us, what, what do you busy yourself with? What are you running for? What are you running after? What time is it? Section C, under time to hear the Lord of hosts, verses 5 and 6 and then 9 through 11 is, consider your ways. How's that working for you? How's that working for you? God tells us to consider our ways, to give careful thought to them. Consider how you have fared. Think carefully about it. Place your heart. Set your hearts upon your ways. Consider what you have done. Recall to your memory what you have allowed in your life. Think it over. Consider how you have acted and, and what has happened as a result. The paraphrase of this passage in the Living Bible is, is pretty good. Let me read, read that. God says, look at the result. You planted much but harvest little. You scarcely have enough to eat or drink and not enough clothes to keep you warm. Your income disappears as though you were putting it into pockets filled with holes. You hope for much but get so little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. It doesn't last at all. Why? Because my temple lies in ruins and you don't care. Your only concern is your own fine homes. That is why I'm holding back the rains from heaven and giving you such scant crops. In fact, I have called for a drought upon the land, yes, and in the highlands too. A drought to wither the grain and grapes and olives and all your other crops. A drought to starve both you and all your cattle and ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. When they failed to fulfill God's will, he made life hard for them so they would seek him. God says, I blew it all away. I ruined it. I blew on it. I brought drought and burning wind. And the heavens and the earth obeyed their creator and brought these things. But God's people did not obey their creator. By changes in rain, dew, and weather, changes in health, finances, God can reduce human pride and self sufficiency. Surely this is one of his purposes for these past two years of COVID hysteria, to reduce our human pride and self-sufficiency. When our work is unproductive and or unfulfilling, we must at least consider the possibility that, is, that it is due to our neglect of our relationship with God. Now I need to be very careful here because sometimes unfulfillment in work and finances and things like that is, is just a result of the fallen world we live in. In Genesis 3, God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we need to ask God to grant us discernment so we can know the difference, what, what difficulties, what uh, obstacles or frustrations in our work or in our uh, lives are in fact just due to the fallenness, the brokenness of the world, and what things are brought to us by his fatherly, fatherly discipline and love, his desire to correct us. Because if the Lord of hosts says, give careful thought to your ways, we'd better listen. Because the people had not given God first place in their lives, their work was not fruitful or productive. Their material possessions did not satisfy. While they concentrated on building and beautifying their own homes, God's blessing was withheld because they no longer put him in first place. Their self-centered lives could not satisfy. My self-centered life cannot satisfy. We need to remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The next section, under time to hear the Lord of hosts. God tells them what time it is. He tells the people that it is time to honor him and glorify him. Their first priority in verses 7 and 8 was to be that God would be honored. And this is like the first question of our catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to joy, enjoy him forever. In verse 8, they're told to go up to the hills, go up into the mountains. Why go to the mountains? King, remember, King Cyrus had provided money and materials for them to re, do all the rebuilding years ago. We wonder if perhaps the people, the leaders, had misused those materials, the wood, to panel their own homes. But they were go, to go up into the mountain and cut timber there was hard work to be done. There was physical labor that needed to be done. They needed to put God's work. Their God's. They needed to put God's work first, and effort was required. They were to go up, bring, and build. It's kind of like like a Christmas present that comes in a box that says "Some assembly required." Those aren't always fun, but the end result is usually the better Christmas presents. God uses our efforts to build up his church, to build up his kingdom. So how might the Lord of hosts be calling us to help build his kingdom? What interests, abilities, opportunities, and desires do you have that can be put to work to build up his church? We all love the warmth of our cocoons, but there are times when we need to tear ourselves out of them, to spread our wings and share the love and the good news of Jesus that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So we need to think it over, to think about it carefully. How can you go, bring, 
and build? Well, I think some of the part of the answers are in the second section. It's time to fear the Lord of hosts. What time is it? Time to fear the Lord of hosts. And this is for verses from verses 12 through 15. The first section, verse 12, they feared and obeyed. Now all the remnant, all the remnant heard and obeyed the Lord, but they also feared and obeyed the Lord. The people showed reverence for the Lord. Like the early church in, in Acts chapter 9, we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. The people had godly awe. They had reverence. They were, had devotion. Not fear of final judgment, but fear of God's displeasure and fatherly discipline. They realized that when God has spoken, apathy is evidence of practical atheism. They feared in the sense that they had been startled, wide awake, by the voice of God. Now, they not only feared the Lord, but they were, they were brought near to the Lord as well. If you take a look at verse 12, it says they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. Remember earlier, God had distanced himself, these people. But now he says they're, they're called, he's called their God in, in verse, two, uh, verse 12 two times. In verse 13, their God is implied when he says, I am with you. In verse 14, their God is said again and also implied again in the Lord stirring up their hearts, their spirits for the work. God is no longer distancing himself from these people, but he is pleased to be known as their God. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, is a repeated refrain in the scriptures. In fact, it's the goal of human existence. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Second point under time to fear the Lord of hosts. Know that God is with us. Verse 13, know that God is with us. This is the promise throughout the scriptures as well. To Moses, to Caleb, to Judah, and the conquest of the land of Canaan. It's repeated in Isaiah throughout the scriptures. This is the glorious promise that we celebrate and remember at Christmas time. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus gives us directions that are kind of similar to Haggai's words, go up to the mountains, bring wood, build the house, Jesus gives the same promise and blessing, I am with you, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Can there be more comforting words than these? When the Lord of hosts, the God of the universe, says, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. The third point under time to fear the Lord of hosts, verses 14 and 15 have your spirit stirred by God, then come and work today. The Lord stirred up their spirits. 
he awakened them, he roused them, he, he raised them up in their minds, in their affections, in their emotions, their will, their, their intellect, their disposition, their disposition, their very mindset. God awakens in the people an intense desire to work on repairing his house, as he did later with Nehemiah and the people in rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem about 75 years later. Nehemiah says, for the people had a mind or a heart to work. Now, each person didn't do everything, but everyone played their own part in accord with God's gifting and calling. They didn't neglect their own households, but they rethought and reordered their priorities. Haggai called the people to respond as the people had done under Moses hundreds of years before in the building of the tabernacle. In Exodus 35, we see that all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, and every one who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. All the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. The people obeyed the voice of the Lord because the Lord stirred up their spirits. God builds his new temple by stirring up our spirits to work through the indwelling power of his spirit. We are thereby called and empowered to glorify God with our bodies. God will establish his kingdom in this world, in and through even us. We, in turn, are called to seek his kingdom first. In verses 14 and 15, we notice that it was only 23 days after Haggai's initial message that the people started building. Just 23 days. It's pretty quick. Yet there is also grace in those 23 days as well. God gave the people time. It was harvest time. He allowed 23 days for that work to be finished. He gives us time, too. Like before the flood in Genesis, we read that after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. He didn't have to give those seven days. God continues to show us his grace in the use of time as the Lord of time now. Second Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, in verse 15, 
Haggai chapter 1, we arrive on the 24th day. This would have been September 21st, 520 B.C. And as a result of Haggai's message, the temple was rebuilt in about five years. We don't know if Haggai got to see the completed work, but maybe. And there's certainly a sense here that if you build it, he will come. Of course, now we are not building a physical temple, not a building, but a spiritual one. God's people are his temple. 1 Corinthians says we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Do you not know that you are, the te- are God's temple and the, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the New Testament mystery, a new community that is the focal point of God's saving work in the world. Verses 14 and 15 says, And the Lord gave them a desire to rebuild the temple. So what kingdom-building work is God giving you a desire to do? Me a desire to do? Are our hands available for God's work in the world? In these, three, these last verses, the second section, time to fear the Lord of the hosts, we, we really have kind of a, jer- a church growth strategy here. Fear and obey. Know that God is with us. Have our spirits stirred by God to come and work today. For now, even now, even in these times, is the favorable time. Every January, the world tells us that it's time to get organized, time to exercise, maybe get on a diet, maybe start thinking about what to do on that high holy day they call Super Bowl Sunday. But Christians, the Lord of hosts is calling us to organize our hearts, our priorities, to exercise the gifts he's given us to build up his church and to make disciples. He is calling us to consider the plays of the big game of our lives, He's calling us to consider the part that he has for us to play in his story. For the Lord of hosts knows precisely what time it is. He is calling us to consider our ways. If you are not yet a Christian, the world's philosophy tells you that because you're alive, you're basically good, and that when you die or pass, they don't like to use the D word, You go to a better place. Just follow your heart, build your life on whatever you feel like. But the world doesn't know what time it is. The Bible teaches that because you're alive, you're a sinner by birth and by choice, and that God is calling you to repentance. All of our lives, our family, our circumstances, our past, present, future, our health, events in nature and politics in the world, all of it is a call to repent and believe the good news. If we're building a life outside of Christ Jesus, then we're building on self, we're building on sand, and we're trying to keep it all together, hold it all together with the various super glues and and duct tapes that the world has to offer. But that temple, that kind of temple, that playhouse will fall in great will be its fall. Every day, everything that happens, God is calling us to repentance. For all of us, this call to go up into the mountains, to get wood 
and to build must start at a mountain. It must start at a hill known as the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified to provide eternal forgiveness for our sins. You must start at the wood of his cross. You must build your life by resting in all the blessings that he provides by his birth, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and intercession for sinners. We must follow Christ to the holy mountain as sinners, sorry and wrecked by the fall. Cleanse our hearts and our souls in the fountain that flows for you, for me, and for all. For now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The call for all of us is to a God-centered, a God-focused, a God-absorbed, a God-saturated, even a God-obsessed and God-addicted lifestyle. As you do so by God's grace and the Holy Spirit's power, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the building, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so we need to glorify God in our bodies. We are members. We are the bricks that he uses to build his temple. I don't know if you know this children's song, but it's a great summary. So we're building up the temple, building up the temple, building up the temple of the Lord. Brother, won't you help me? Sister, won't you help me? Building up the temple of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, startle us wide awake by your true word. Inflame our hearts with love for you. Set our hearts on fire with love for you, with zeal for your house. O Christ our God, that loving you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, we may obey your commandments and glorify you, the giver of all good gifts. Amen. You will please stand as we sing together, all glory be to Christ. <laughs>